Hey, y'all, welcome to Unbound Love, the meandering conversation of two pastors. So I am Gail. And I'm Kelly. And today we welcome to our podcast, Matt Hackworth. Um, Hack, as we all lovingly call him. Um, Matt and I go to, um, uh, went to seminary together. Uh, he will be finishing up at Chicago Theological Seminary, uh, his MDiv, uh, this coming spring. Um, so a big whoop whoop for that. Because um, <laughs> I, I feel that joy. I filled my, uh, finished mine up uh, this past May, and so I feel the joy of of having that that uh, be completed. Matt has worked in um, uh, world relief for a number of years. I think 18, 20, somewhere around in there. Almost and fifteen. Almost fifteen. Just Close feels like twenty. Yeah. Um, feels like eighty. And so. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you a little bit about who he is, and then uh, we're going to talk about uh, refugees uh, worldwide. Welcome, Great. Matt. Hey, thanks. Hello. It's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, I hope I live up to that introduction. Um, no, my name is Matt Hackworth. I, am, uh, I describe myself as a recovering journalist. Uh, I spent 13 years as a news reporter, and... Um, just became utterly addicted to the power of story. And uh, I felt a, a call uh, as a person of faith that I needed to lean into that a bit more and that there was something more for me to do besides just working in media and public radio specifically. Um, and to bring the vision of the world that I saw on Sunday mornings closer to what I experienced on Monday through Friday. Um, and so I, I landed at a place called Church World Service, where I worked in, uh, in disaster communication initially, and then uh, was ultimately in charge of their, their communication and marketing team, and then gravitated to uh, an organization called IMA World Health, which later became Chorus International. Um, but through it all, I, I just, I see my ministry as sharing the story of the church's work in the world, but also for the need for the church to work in the world. And so I've been very, very blessed for these last 15 years to be able to travel the world and to bear witness to suffering, but also to sh the efforts to shape a, a better world for people in need. So uh, tell us your, your latest trip was to So I did a month in, um, <laughs> in East Africa. I was in Tanzania, and then I was in Sudan, um, including the areas of the Tigray conflict out in the east. And then I was in Sudan, uh, a place I've been several times, and I've uh, become quite fond of South Sudan. It's, um, it's strange. It's a place where you can just feel heartbreak the moment you step off the airplane. But um, the people there are incredible. I mean, there are great people everywhere. Uh, I don't mean to, to say that, but the people in South Sudan just have this wonderful joy amidst suffering and helpfulness at, at, to almost a fault. Um, and so the, I have friends who are South Sudanese that I consider lifelong friends. And um, there are a ton of needs there, but there's also a ton of opportunity. 
So share with us, um, speaking of just the Sudan region, what is something that a couch minister could do to reach out and connect and help with what you're seeing in the world? Couch minister? Like someone who can't go to Sudan, (laughs) but wants to do something from their home base. Oh, I'm pretty fond of my couch. I was like, wow, is it an opportunity to, 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 to marry just these two loves? created that. I just created that new position I in the church. It. No, I totally dig it. I totally dig it. No, I mean, the, the biggest thing is to bear witness to that suffering and the need to respond. And that the suffering that might be experienced by people you never know uh, it still doesn't require you or, or doesn't doesn't absolve you from facing it and addressing it, at least in voice. Um, the, the injustice that's experienced by people who suffer in post-colonial countries um, they, 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 is the result of layers of injustice that many of us unknowingly prop up. And so, you know, knowing that all of us carry around a cell phone that has minerals that have been mined by child labor, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't carry around a cell phone, but it does mean that we should be on the lookout for a cell phone that might not be made on the backs of kids and their labor. Um, and so just, just having that kind of presence of mind and to, to, to lift up the idea of just because I don't know you doesn't mean I'm not in community with you. And to, to share that common source of humanity, um, I think, is the call of a pastor. Um, the, the pastor, I think, shapes beloved community wherever she goes. And um, for me, that involves making sure that we enjoy life, but we don't do so at the expense of others and in propping up the suffering of others. So, so aside from, you know, uh, saying it from the pulpit, you know, there are people suffering throughout the world, Mm -hmm. Uh, aside from posting it to our social media, you know, Hey, there are people suffering throughout the world. Um, You know, being aware of it is one thing. Um, doing something is another. And as you say, there's the unlikely chance that we're going to put down our cell phones or abolish cell phones. Um, But uh, are there, are there things that we should be looking for? Uh, Are there ways that we should be thinking uh, that really draw people into knowing what is and is not uh, an okay thing to do or not to? Great question. No, I mean, I, I, I think you know, there, there is no end zone that we will realize in our lifetimes. Oh, man, I so wanted to spike the ball. <laughs> I know, right? Wouldn't that yeah. be? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, I, it's so tempting to think that way, right? Like to think, oh, we're going to beat this. Um. I, I don't know that we will ever end human suffering. I hope that we will end needless suffering, right? Yeah. And so there are a panoply of options that 
congregations, communities who care. I don't care if you're in a, you know, if it's a bunch of people at a bar who, you know, just like hanging out together, there's always something beloved community can do in service to others. So, I mean, I think that, that to your question, giving voice is a powerful thing and empowering your, your, your community, whether that is the bar crowd or that's the church crowd, uh, empowering them with knowledge and giving them license to explore what might be speaking to their hearts in service to that beloved community, I think is a big deal. So it'll take the shape obviously initially as giving voice and advocating, but there are any number of practical ways that people who care can get involved that build that beloved community. One of them is refugee resettlement. Um, it is a fantastic ministry and a place that has to grow. Right now, there are more than 80 million people who cannot go home in this world. 80 million. That's the most at any time since World War II. I don't think I'm under any illusion anyway that we're going to resettle every single one of those 80 million people. But I do think speaking to the tradition of welcome and the opportunity of serving those people and offering those who are most in danger a safe place to live and welcoming into the, the community, your, and maybe even literally welcoming them into your community, uh, is a place that people who care have to lean into, and, and we must lean into it. Um, you know, I, I, the church has a rich tradition of welcome and then not being welcoming. And I think that yes. uh, Amen. Th yeah. there, there, there is a, an opportunity there that has to begin with pastoral leadership and what's placed on the hearts of people who care. Um, you know, North Carolina has a robust uh, refugee resettlement program. I don't know if the political winds are changing and that might be more limited than, than it's been in the past, but the opportunity to, for a state to open its doors and communities to open their doors to people who want, who need shelter and need to start a new life uh, will only come from people who have a moral compass to speak to it. Earlier, you mentioned cell phones and sourcing. Um, a couple years ago, I stepped away from the pulpit and decided to open a coffee shop. And in that, learned about fair trade, fair sourcing, child labor, and went down that pathway of making sure that everything sourced for the shop was not on the backs of child labor or female labor. And it is a rough journey when you start opening your eyes. I mean, it went from coffee and chocolate to jeans and shirts and jewelry and cell phones and all of the stuff that you mentioned. And it was overwhelming. It was as people came into the shop asking what we were talking about, what we were doing. And we started opening those doors to people and explaining that where you spend your money and where this frivolous stuff like a cup of coffee or a chocolate bar comes from 
it becomes this kind of almost fear that everything we've been doing, everything we are doing is possibly hurting someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, When you actually are visiting places, um, for me, it was coffee plantations, but when you're actually visiting places and you're seeing what happens in the world, and then you come back to your cushy couch, (laughs) how do you kind of deal with the trauma or the basically once your mind's open there's so many possibilities of change so many difficult avenues that you've seen and things you've experienced how do you deal with your mental and spiritual health after that Mm. good question uh writing is one of my sustaining practices Preaching about what I've seen is an extension of that. Um, My journey into seminary is a reflection of the people I've met and the stories I carry on their behalf. Um, That's in the existential sense. I mean, in a personal sense, yeah, I, I, I wrestle with, the suffering. I don't, I don't think you can be a human being and not do so. Um, But I will say that the catharsis of writing, the act of preaching, which is not my chosen (laughs) way to, to, to engage in ministry um, gives me an outlet. Um, and I, I never try to, to frame it as a, you should feel like a, you know, the lowest louse of all from the pulpit because of your, your unknowingly propping up these systems of injustice. I don't, I don't, that's not my approach at all, but I do try to share what that heartache looks like, because I think at the end of the day, everybody knows what it's like to want the best for your spouse. Everybody knows what it's like to love their mother. Many of us know what it is like to just want the best for your kids. And there's something in there that is relative, relatable, and hopeful. And in that I find comfort that universally you know, there are jerks and there are wonderful people everywhere. And 95% of the world I've traveled, I've met fantastic human beings who just want their kids not to get sick when they drink water. They want to be able to do an honest day's work for a living wage. And uh, to, to ultimately be happy and live with their families peacefully in community. That's universal. That's, and there's something comforting in that to me. And so when I get down and I'm like, man, I can't take watching one more kid laying there with a gut ache and, and just a fever and, or suffering malaria, even worse, um, in some clinic, you know, I, I have to know that the act of caring is universal 
And um, I don't know, there's something redeeming about that for me that I turn to when I get down. I also like a good stiff drink every now and then, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> Man is an old-fashioned man. I am indeed. Um, so act of caring. You what? I like that. The act of caring yeah. is redeeming. The act of caring is redeeming. Um, and I think that that's true in any community you're in. It's, it's yeah. not just, a, you don't have to go to the other side of the world to do that. And I think that sometimes that's something that we fall into. We want to make a difference. We want to, to, to care. We want to find that redemption in caring, but we feel like we have to go to the ends of the earth to do it um, and ignore what's happening in our back door. Yep. Let me, let me give you an example of how this can play out in everyday life. I spent a little time with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida. Have you guys ever heard of them? No. no. So there is a... Uh, really barren rural area of central Florida where something like, I don't know, 90% of the U.S. tomato market is grown. And there are tomato pickers there that are almost universally migrant labor. People from Latin America who've come here, uh, crossed borders without documentation um, to pick tomatoes. Um, there have been a number of horror stories that come out of the Immokalee community of people who are forced to live in the back of semi-trailers without running water. They're crammed in there. They're padlocked at night. Um, living in the middle of floodplain. I mean, you name it, a host of horror stories. But yet these are the people who pick tomatoes that end up in Publix supermarkets or on Wendy's hamburgers. And so you, you sit with them and you hear the horror stories and you, you come to learn, you know, about not only their flight, what brought them to the U S but what they endure once they're here. And many people have the reaction, well, I'm just not going to eat at Wendy's anymore. I'm not going to shop at Publix anymore. And they're always quick to say, that's not what we're saying. But what we are asking you to do is to use your voice. And so they have these form letters that they will give you so that when you do go to Publix, you can leave a letter with the manager of your local Publix to say, hey, did you know that Publix is paying its tomato workers these absurdly low rates and doing so so they can maximize profit on the backs of the well-being of people who are truly the least of these. And they've got another form letter that goes to a Wendy's manager that says, hey, did you know that Wendy's is paying us like pennies per pound and has no interest in looking after the farm workers who put the tomato on your single with cheese? That's, it's not exactly total absolution, but you are using your voice and the privilege of where you shop in order to effect change. Wow. I'm... And no, I'm thinking about every tomato I've ever eaten. <laughs> Me too. Look them up on, on the web. Yeah. Coalition of Immokalee Workers. It is, um, 
if you go through Florida, drive there, visit. They love hosting visitors. There is a, uh, a little, like a community center slash museum where you can talk with people who pick tomatoes and uh, have endured these conditions. And um, I mean, they, they love hosting visitors and sharing the story and uh, they have stellar activist chops. They'll do things like walking from Orlando to Washington DC or something to, in order to, to share the story of their plight. Um, but yeah, absolutely show up or at least check them out on the web, Coalition of Immokalee Workers. We'll, yeah. we'll make sure to put a link. Yeah, we'll below. put a link in the in, cool. in, in our yeah, show notes. Absolutely. That is what that's what gives me hope are yeah, the right? little things that you can do just to use your privilege in a simple way. I mean, a 10-year-old can do that. A group of moms can do that. And that's kind of what we need to start this spirit of social justice that needs to be pervasive in the church isn't really but needs to be more pervasive in the church um as you come across things like this village um how do you find ways aside from just your church pulpit how do you find ways to get stories out and what are the best ways? I mean, I love the idea of letter writing. We do a lot of that. But what are the best ways that you see for not a pastor, just for the average listener to help share these stories? Social media is a great tool. Um, I realize many people are jaded by it. Um, but for those of us who look on it as an opportunity for relationship maintenance, there's a powerful witness and saying, hey, here's this story that spoke to me, give it a read. Um, that's an initial very practical way uh, to begin to um, bear witness uh, to, to, to needs. I mean, we, you know, I work for an NGO and we have a platform, obviously, and our stories are used for fundraising and for advocacy and, and any number of uh, outlets that that speak both to our, our constituency, which is mostly uh, Lutherans in the U.S., because Chorus is the parent organization for Lutheran World Relief, but then also speaking truth to power in Washington, D.C. And so if there's a story that um, speaks to us, sharing that story with our member of Congress, with, you know, uh, the White House with your state legislature lawmaker um, are equally powerful ways to give voice. I mean, I've, I've seen, I've worked on, on contracts for the U.S. Agency for International Development before. And while it is a tool of diplomacy, to be sure, it also, you know, carries work that saves lives. And there's something powerful about saying, hey, I live in your district. You represent our state on the, I don't know, foreign relations committee. Let's make it, something, make it up. And I think that this is a critical need to make sure that people in South Sudan have health care or that people in Tanzania don't have to suffer with these strange diseases that only poor people in developing countries endure. Um, 
that 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 carries a lot of weight. I'm going to step back to a personal note question. Um, as you are traveling the world, as you are going out and doing this great work, um, we know as pastors, sometimes we are giving a lot in our personal families right now. Our friend Marshall is <laughs> suffering if you hear the dog in the background. Um, our, our personal lives sometimes have to take a back seat because we have this calling. Um, how do you incorporate your family, um, your family life, your friendships here when you are absent quite a bit physically? How do you balance both a family and friend life and this service work that you do? Mm. Great question. I want to know personally. So <laughs> it's hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's really hard. Um, I, you know, I've been married 23 years. And um, when my wife and I got married, she thought she was marrying just a regular reporter, you know, just somebody who would cover the local news and spend his days at city hall or in the courthouse. And uh, my wife is uh, very gracious and um, knows that this work brings me fulfillment and um, that in so doing, I can be myself and a better version of myself maybe than, um, or at least I try to be a better version of myself than the one she married. Um, but it's hard. I mean, I've, I've missed a lot of milestones with my, my son Noah uh, growing up. Um, I've missed I've, I've, the last two birthdays I, I've spent away. I spent my birthday last year in Beirut, this year in Khartoum, Sudan. So um, to say it does, I, oh, it's just fine. I, you know, I get over it. I, that wouldn't be truthful. Um, but I have wonderful, wonderful friendships in the places I travel. And they are no substitute, of course, for, for my immediate family. But it's, there's something about the power of relationship that keeps me going. And, you know, when I, when I travel, I, I post airport codes of where I'm going, uh, because inevitably somebody will be transiting the same airport I am. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a riot. Like two years ago, I'll give you an example. I was in Juba, South Sudan again, and a friend of mine said, how long are you in Juba? And I said, I'll be here two weeks. And she said, well, I'm here now too. And I was like, get out of town. And this is a friend of mine who's from Japan. And we worked on the same contract together in Pakistan years ago. Um, and then we just, you know, we got together, we caught up. I invited another friend of mine, colleague, and, um, you know, now they're friends. And it's just, the power of relationship is a big deal with me. It's a really big deal to me. And so that's one way I try to find comfort. And, um, but I'm also like when I'm home, I, I, I try to be fully present. And that has not always been easy, especially trying to tackle seminary while doing this job. <laughs> it's kind of like the chosen, sorry. It's kind of like that chosen family we were talking about in the other podcast where 
we create this chosen family and with social activism, with mission work, mm-hmm. it seems like you've created a chosen family that expands on your own family. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's, um, and they all know, you know, they know my family by name. I've, I've hosted them in my house. We've, you know, traveled the world together. It's, it's just been, um, again, it's another version of beloved community. So I feel like the power of relationship is, um, is a very religious thing. Hmm. Um, you know, so yeah. I mean, um, so as you were saying that, I'm just like, this is, this is the basis of really all religion, the power of relationship mm-hmm. um, and how we relate to God and how we relate to each other um, is all about the power of relationship. Yeah, I dig that. You know, I mean, I think, do you ever, with CTS, did you take um, one of the courses on Islam for your non-Christian credit? I did not. I did Judaism, ah. but but Kelly's an Islam yeah. girl. My my degree's an immersive degree in world religion, so I actually lived in Morocco, ah. studied Islam with a wonderful Muslim host family that actually brought me to my pastoral career. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. But yes, it's. What were you going to share about Islam? Well, I just, there, there's, um, I, I took a, a, a course on contemporary Islamic thought and, um, cause I was doing a lot of travel and work in the middle East and, uh, just the opportunity to learn about it while I'm in such an immersed environment was, uh, too good to pass up. Right. But one of the things I, I, that I walked away from with that course is this understanding that Islam is, is more than a faith it's a holistic prescription for living in community. And ever since I took that course, I've kind of been trying to find, no, I've been exploring, well, what does that look like in a Christocentric context? In other words, in following Christ, how do I hack walk the walk? And what does that mean for relationship? And what does that mean for broader community and how I meet the world? And what if that's really what it's all about? Um, I feel that completely. <laughs> when I was, um, I was running away from my call when I was in Morocco. I did a fair amount um, of that. Yeah, that's what we all do, we it all seems. Do. <laughs> God just call chases us. <laughs> but yeah. I, I and may have talked about this before on the podcast, but in that idea of not separating and praying when you need something, but making prayer central to your daily routine, Mm -hmm. making what you eat and how you trade or work as a merchant or how you study, making your entire life, that connection to your creator and to each other, that religion kind of changed my idea of what my pastoral call could look like it really being immersed and I was in Fez which this is pre 9-11 but Fez was a complete Muslim culture I mean the entirety of Morocco is Muslim and so I was immersed in this culture where when the bell rang the entire world stopped around me to pray 
when we went to shop for food, prepare food, eat together, it was a religious experience. Mm-hmm. And I feel exactly what you say. It taught me how to be a better Christian. And I think experiences in this life, whether it's traveling to Sudan or Morocco or talking to the migrant workers in your backyard, I think those experiences make you better in whatever faith walk you choose. And sometimes maybe push you further than you ever thought you would be pushed before. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm really glad you framed it the way you did because it reflects sort of where I am now. I'm, uh, I'm leaving international relief and development work, and I'm leaning into disability ministry to which I've been called. And um, Never plan to land here. You know, we plan God laughs, right? Mm-hmm. But that concept of living in beloved community, it's where I see it playing out. And so I'm really happy to go to work for a new organization that it's not a new organization, it's new to me, but uh, that intentionally builds beloved community in a faith based model. Um, and it just, that just speaks so powerfully to me and to what I think our tradition should be about and should do in the world. So. So I just want to kind of draw a correlation between uh, what I think happens in other countries and what happens in the United States. And you talked about their culture being um, uh, immersed in this uh, religion or this idea of how to live in community. And um, I, I wonder if in our Americanism of separation of church and state, in our Americanism of religion is in one corner and everything else is taking up the rest of the room, um, if we haven't in some ways uh, diminished our ability to live in community, diminished our ability to um, uh to really work with each other and to uh, to love each other in spite of whatever that of is. That tie that binds. Yeah. Have we broken it? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's a disconnect um, that upholds what I think you're saying. Okay. And that, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll meet people who are staunchly against immigration or refugee resettlement or welcoming communities. But then I also know these people that if you came to them in the middle of the night and you needed something, they would move heaven and earth for you. Mm-hmm. And so there's this phenomenon of othering people in need um, in a way that's created this sort of self what but self validating argument of keeping people away as opposed to recognizing our connections um i think that's a powerful tool that can be used politically for a number of ways um i think that there is something that is antithetical to at least my faith tradition about finding common ground 
And it doesn't mean that we've got to be kumbaya on every damn thing on the planet, but it does mean that don't you want to recognize that individual's basic right to exist? Shouldn't that be part of what faith leads us to do? Um, and I think in an American context, we, we, we get caught in this bootstraps narratives about this being a place where everybody can do everything on their own. Um, but it's just not true. And um, it upholds this cyclical effect of keeping people, well, I did this, you know, and I did it on my own, right? But you're also a cisgendered straight white male from the American South <laughs> and have all of the privilege that comes with that. And I, I don't think this is totally a Republican Democrat thing. One of, one of the most surprising things I covered as a reporter was the opening of the Bob Dole Center in Lawrence, Kansas, which is the closest thing Bob Dole would get to a, to a presidential library, right? It's this huge facility. They do great work on supporting ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, et cetera. But Bob Dole, at the, at the opening of that center, he got up there and said, there is no such thing as a self-made American. We are all in this together. And that's Bob Dole, for goodness sakes, you know? So I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's a, um, a political phenomenon that goes to one side or the other. I think it is an American cultural phenomenon that is built upon a myth. Um, and a myth that keeps us, keeps the focus on what is different about you, stranger, as opposed to what we share, because what we share is way more powerful, I think. You know, we, we all live into the stranger danger idea, you yep. know, uh, we teach it to our kids, we teach it um, to each other, we, we say it to each other, you know, the stranger is dangerous. And, um, and I can think of many people that I know who, would, who I would consider politically hateful. Like they are hateful people when it comes to their politics. And yet, if you have a need, they're the first person opening their wallet, moving heaven and earth, doing whatever they have to do yep. to meet that need for someone that they know. Um, and knowing them is, is the key. Like they will do anything for someone they know, even someone they disagree with. Um, but for a stranger, nope, stranger danger, stranger danger. I think. We have this thing in our Methodist tradition. Our focus is sanctification, like sanctifying grace. And that takes growth. That takes making mistakes. That takes being completely open to all that God is offering you. Um, we have this idea that you could be reach sanctification here on earth, but you probably won't. <laughs> but I think when you said self-validation um, and we're talking about this putting ourselves separate from the stranger. I think that is the opposite of sanctification. I think mm. the idea that you self-validate what you know, and we all do it across the political spectrum, across the cultural spectrum, when you say what I know is right and you validate that within yourself, you kind of close the door to God's sanctification, God's sanctifying grace. And I think our hope, hopefully, 
as pastors across traditions, actually as religious leaders across religions, is to grow and to change and to make the world a better place, that whole special kingdom. And I think the antithesis, the opposite of that is that self-gratifying feeling of saying, I'm right, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And I still am trying to figure out, maybe both of you can help me out. I'm still trying to figure out how to break that, that cycle, break that, putting yourself in the right, instead of putting yourself in the, I'm open to learning place. Mm. I could help you, but I'm right and you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, we knew that coming in, Gail. Well, yeah. Um, Say it out loud. No, I'm glad you, you, you put it that way. Um, I sometimes wonder if our role as faith leaders, as pastors, as, as people who feel called to ministry and are, have been called to ministry, isn't just to help people make more loving choices at every turn. And so I think that, you know, the more we can lift up Christ as a model who, um, who demonstrated loving choice, in his time with us and um, point to that as a model for how we need to make loving choices. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that speaks to, at least to me anyway, it, it, it kind of affirms exactly what you're saying about, you know, how, how we, how we break that cycle for good. I like that. God is, uh, you know, Jesus is our model. And how do we make loving choices uh, ourselves? And how do we help others to make loving choices? I mean, loving choices doesn't mean that you don't get the, the single with cheese if you're just really Jones in one, but it might mean that you leave the letter with the manager to say, hey, pay your tomato pickers better, please. Or, you know, could, could be flipping over tables, you know. There's, there's that Jesus hey, model too. I, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not, I would never say that table flipping isn't warranted. Um, but we're not telling you to go to Wendy's right now and flip all the tables. Oh, no, 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 we're not saying that. No, but you I am dressing for a single with cheese now. Yeah, so we've talked about it so much. I'm just like, yeah. you know, that's one of the things when I travel that I miss the most is like a, a good burger. Uh, um, I'm, you know, Wendy's burgers are Wendy's burgers, but it's, it's, uh, crazy man it's like i it's become my tradition i get off the plane and i go wherever i can to get a burger i i find that when i stay in a place long enough though i come home and i want to replicate that food oh sure um and so and it never works (laughs) there's just something about anywhere you're at being in a place and experiencing that culture those people around you i think that coming to the table with people is the central part of our Christianity too, like being at the table and breaking bread. But there's something about the people that combines with the taste and the senses that just makes that burger or whatever you're eating so much better. You know, there's a a whole line of theological inquiry that is built on the idea that the cross is the wrong image for Christianity Mm. and that it really ought to be the cup. or the table or some other mode that reflects not the world's evil, 
but God's openness. And um, I don't know, the older I get, the more I, I study and try to learn, the more that just really speaks to me. Um, I would much rather have a collection of chalices than a collection of crosses. I'm now thinking about our altar table and how we take the cup off and put it back on, but we always have the cross. Maybe it should be opposite. Maybe we should make the cup central. I, I, like I do like idea. the idea that, the, that the, the symbol of Christianity would be a cup, a glass, a, 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 a sharing of a beverage, mm-hmm. um, some sharing of some bread, uh, that the table is a much better representation. I don't know what that looks like on a necklace. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, those on Etsy out there, give us a... yeah a necklace that's Christian that represents the cup and the table and not a cross or a fish. I'm looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, dig it. I dig it. Yeah. I, I would like that guys. We're coming to the end of our time together. Um, thanks Matt for joining with us. Um, it's been, it's been a fun conversation. It's been a, it's been a joy. I, um, you know, I just, I think the world of you, Gail. And I, I, and, and I hope you and nice uh, you. fun, man. I, uh, I like, I liked, I like this conversation and talking about such stuff. So, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's meandering and that's really one of the things that we love about it. We will drop some links into our show notes. Um, so uh, for, for the ministries that, uh, that Matt has been a part of uh, and ways that you can, uh, can help with refugees worldwide. Um as well as the new ministry that he's going into for people with disabilities uh, and how you can maybe be a part of that as well. Um, and we'll, we'll drop the link in for the, the tomato pickers in, uh, in Florida. So if you, you want to print out some letters and take them to your local Wendy's and uh, let them know they should do good, do right. Um, and get a frosty too. And get a frosty. Absolutely. You can't go without getting a frosty. This week, just be intentional about learning about a community you don't know about. I know we said that before, but we're going to give you some links to some communities, but be intentional about stepping outside of your comfort zone and learning about something you haven't learned about before. Maybe in your own back door. Exactly. Love y'all. See you next week. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Matt.